word. I figured it was a good opportunity for actually to look at a text that unpacks God's word for us. And so I'm going to invite you to turn to um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can also use the Pew Bibles if you'd like to as well. Just don't write in those. <laughs> Second Timothy chapter 3. Uh, let's talk a little bit briefly about Second Timothy background there. It was the second letter written to Timothy. Surprise, surprise, right? Uh, there is a first Timothy. It was uh, a letter that Paul wrote to a young man whom he mentored and discipled who was a pastor. He was a pastor of the church in Ephesus, which is in, at that time, called uh, Asia Minor, in his modern-day Turkey. Um, what's interesting about Paul's second letter to Timothy um, is that Paul is writing these, pretty much his last words. He's in prison in Rome, facing trial and execution, and you get a sense from his letter that he knows his time is short. And so part of what his letter is, and I think this is like really cool, it's a very personal touch he has in there where he's encouraging Timothy to come to him. He wants Timothy to be with him during his last times. And if you think about that, the idea that when we're in our last days, who do we want around us but our brothers and sisters in Christ? Um, part of, though, what, what uh, Paul is doing here with Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy is he encouraging him as a pastor, pastoring in a very difficult situation, Okay. And so he wants to bring uh, Timothy lots of encouragement, give him some advice, uh, instruction on pastoring, and, and those kinds of things. And so the text that I want to look at initially is in chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 17. This might be very familiar with you in reading this passage, because this is the passage that we usually go to when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, right? Scripture is God-breathed. So what I want to do this morning is we're going to divide you up. And small but mighty group, you're going to start off with verse 14. You are going to be verse 15. You are going to be verse... Six, all right, 16, we're together. And then at the end, we'll all read 17 together. All right? Let's go ahead and begin. Verse 14. But as for you... And altogether, that the man of God may be composite, fit for every good work. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the background, though, as to why Paul pens these words to Timothy. And I want you to look back up at, at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. And does your Bible have a little title that says, Godlessness in the Last Days? Yeah? Okay. Just look at that verse, uh, at those verses 1 through 5. And look at that laundry list of godlessness. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, heartless, slanderous, treacherous, lovers uh, of pleasure rather than lovers of God, right? Does that laundry list look, look familiar to you? 
Is that stuff that you see around you today in today's world? You can actually say yes if you'd like to. It's okay to... So what's interesting about this is Paul talks about this as godlessness in the last days. And so some people, when they hear that, say, we see that today. We must be in the... Guess what, though? Paul thought his days were the last days. So wait a minute. What's going on here? Christians from the beginning believe that from Christ, beginning with Christ's ascension, that they were in the last days. And that those, those days would continue until whenever Christ returned again. That's why Paul saw it in his time. That's why you and I see it in our time. And guess what? They even saw it before Paul's time too as well, uh, is this godless behavior. Now what's interesting too is that this godless behavior is not only stuff they see in the world, but they start seeing this stuff creep in the church. And that becomes concern for Paul as he's writing to Timothy. And if you look at verse 7 of chapter 3, he talks about how these kind of false teachers are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So the idea is they allow their own personal opinion to guide them in the truth of God's word. That doesn't sound so different than what we see today. I've encountered it time and again, and I'm sure many of you have encountered it too as well, where people say things like, well, you have your truth, and I have my truth, right? And, and truth isn't based upon some kind of standard, rather, outside standard, rather, truth is based upon a personal standard, based on my own experiences, what I like, what I don't like. It, it's kind of, it's, truth is actually uh, relegated to the idea of choosing ice cream. Which flavor is the best? How many of you like chocolate? Right? Will you argue, argue passionately about chocolate, Dr. Middendorf? No, 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 no. <laughs> We're not going to do a debate up here about ice cream. I just, yeah. Who likes vanilla? Right? Who likes strawberry? Who likes mango banana? Right? People like different types of ice cream, right? And people will argue for their flavor and why their flavor is the best. What we see is people do the same way of truth. It becomes a personal opinion, and they, they treat truth that way, okay? So the stuff that, that Paul's talking about that he sees in his time, we also see it in our own time. And this becomes the background as why Paul says what he does to Timothy in verses 14 to 17. Right? The godlessness as he's seeing, he says, look, there is a truth that combats that godlessness. And that truth is Scripture that has been God-breathed. People will talk about this as being the inspiration of Scripture, this passage. And indeed it is. But, but I love the language that Paul uses here, God-breathed. Right? Right? It's, it evokes that idea of Genesis 2 where God breathed into Adam and gave life. This is a living word is what Paul is saying. And that's why Paul goes on to talk about, in verse 16, why it's, it's profitable for teaching and to reproof and for correction and training in righteousness. But here's the thing. If we look at Scripture as only what those Greek nouns say in verse 16, that Scripture is just about teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, then we tend to treat Scripture as being a moral guidebook. Let me give you an example. Um, in verse 2 of chapter 3, we read about the godlessness of disobedience to parents. 
right? So someone might say, well, here's how Scripture corrects that. We just look back at Exodus 20, verse 12, and it says to honor your father and your mother so it may go well, right? So people tend to, a lot of times, treat Scripture as that, that law book, focus on the law aspect of Scripture, or focus on it as being an ethical guidebook for life. But Paul actually wants us to start somewhere else with Scripture. And it's in verse 15. I want to read that from you. And speaking to Timothy, he says, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Wise for salvation, faith in Christ Jesus. Now let's let's unpack this passage a little bit. When, when Paul talks about sacred writings, he's talking about Scripture, right? The Scripture mentioned in verse 16 is the sacred writings he mentions in verse 15. And by the way, when Paul's talking about Scriptures at this point in history, he's actually talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament is being written at this point in time. And as 21st century Christians, we can say all Scripture, and we can conclude both Testaments there, but for Paul... He's talking about the Old Testament. And I love it because Paul was saying the Old Testament is what makes you wise into salvation for faith in Christ Jesus. And today a lot of people scratch their head and saying the Old Testament does that? If you have a pencil or if you want to take a note, I encourage you to write here Luke 24, 27. This is a story where it's a post-resurrection appearance And Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and there's two disciples there who don't easily recognize it's Jesus. And Jesus begins doing a Bible study with them. Oh, I wish I was at that Bible study. Anyone else would have loved to be at that Bible study on the road to Emmaus as Jesus was unpacking the Old Testament for them? And he was unpacking the Old Testament saying, here's what the Old Testament says about me. So Jesus himself says the Old Testament is about him. And if Jesus says that, then Paul's in good company for saying the same thing too as well. But the Old Testament, even the Old Testament itself, talks about Christ. Um, I also want to talk here about the word wise. You know, today when we hear the word wise or wisdom... A lot of people tend to think that uh, wisdom is equal to knowledge or intellect. And and really my answer to that is, "Eh, yes, no. Let me me talk about that this way. Um, when When it talks about the idea for wisdom in the Bible, scripturally speaking, wisdom is about practical knowledge, not theoretical knowledge. Okay, practical knowledge, not theoretical knowledge. And I'm going to step into it for a moment. Are you ready? You're going to tweet this later on. I'm going to give the example, and, and uh, you, those of you in this room who have doctorates, please refrain from any angry emails until I'm done. Having a PhD or a doctorate in something doesn't mean that you're wise based upon your education. I'm going to say that again. Having a PhD or a doctorate in something doesn't mean that you're wise based upon your education. I'll even take it further. If you have a doctorate in theology, that also doesn't necessarily mean that you're wise. 
Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the people in this room who've got the doctorates, that they're not wise people. I'm just saying that there is another basis for why it is that they're wise. Let me give you an extreme example. Richard Dawkins. How many of you know this character? Right? Richard Dawkins, uh, for those of you who are going to be taking core theology, who have taken core theology, you'll read a little piece from Richard Dawkins. Uh, he is a well-known British atheist. Okay? The guy has um, graduate degrees and a doctorate including in zoology. He knows things. There's intelligence there. He's not a dumb guy. I would argue that he's not very bright when it comes to the way that he uses critical thinking skills on his atheism, but that's a totally separate issue. Richard Dawkins, though, isn't wise. In fact, I'd go so far as to say Richard Dawkins is a foolish individual. Why? Because he doesn't have that wisdom Right, for salvation, for faith in Christ Jesus. Scripturally speaking, wisdom, especially what Paul's talking about here, relates to that. So I'm going to pick on Dr. Middendorf for a moment here, since I already picked on beforehand. Uh, Dr. Middendorf, by the way, is going to be leading uh, a chapel uh, a week, two weeks from now, since next week is uh, Labor Day weekend, doing Psalm 1 for us. Dr. Middendorf, I would say, is actually a wise person. Not because his doctorate makes him wise. Not because of the fact that he knows more Greek than I do in my little pinky. Not because of the fact that he's written two very valuable textbooks in the book of Romans. But the fact that Dr. Middendorf has faith in Christ Jesus. And I would say that about any of the doctors in this room. That's what makes them wise. Again, wisdom isn't about that worldly knowledge. Mere intellectualism isn't equal to faith. And that's a good thing to remember on a college campus. You can know a lot of stuff. In fact, you can know a lot of stuff about Jesus and doctrine. You can know theological words in Latin and Greek like Dr. Armstrong does. But that intellect, while good and profitable for teaching, doesn't mean... Faith. James talks about this. Chapter 2, verse 19. James talked about, hey, look, even the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. Right? It's not mere intellectualism. Faith is that trust. Trust in Christ as your Savior. That's why people who aren't very intelligent... Let me take it one further. People who, who have learning disabilities, who may not be able to express their faith very well, how they too can have faith in Christ Jesus. Because about that gift of faith given, that's trust in Christ alone. And that's what Paul's relating to here in verse 15 when he talks about wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And here's where Paul is saying that the foundation and the source and the center of Scripture is all about, is there. That's how we look at it. That's the lens by which we also look at those Greek nouns in verse 16. It's through that understanding about what it means to be wise 
for salvation, for faith in Christ Jesus. Now, with that understanding, I want to look at um, one of those nouns. Reproof. Training, reproof, correction, excuse me, teaching, reproof, uh, correction, and training in righteousness. I just want to unpack that one word for you, because I think this is a very interesting word. Uh, in the Greek, reproof, this word that's used here is also used in one other place in, in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Being convicted of the things that you have not seen. It begins that long list of, of, of faith in Hebrews 11, and that's where it starts at. It's interesting that same word is being used here, and so we can understand reproof as being this idea of being convicted of something. Now, Paul's saying that the Old Testament convicts us of the idea that Christ is indeed the Messiah, that Jesus is that Messiah. That is the evidence that we go to, the evidence for Jesus. What's really cool is we also see this in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, when Luke says, hey, I was uh, talking to all the eyewitness accounts for who Jesus truly is. So, Theophilus, you might be certain of the things that you've been taught of. There's that understanding of reproof, the idea is proof, evidence for who Christ is. And we could talk about every single one of those Greek nouns and, and the different ways and how that relates back to Christ and our understanding of Scripture. I'm going to stop there. And I want to give you a encouragement to come back with us. I love the fact that, uh, again, that Old, that Old Testament makes us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. And so this semester, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Old Testament. There's probably a couple times that, that uh, we won't be in the Old Testament because of certain services that are going on. But for the most part, we're going to be spending time in the Old Testament. After Labor Day weekend, we're going to spend uh, four Mondays in Psalms. And I want you to look and see how those psalms point to Christ. And then we're going to spend some time doing a series called Strange Stories in Scripture. Because I don't know about you, but you read the Old Testament, and you read these kind of stories about Balaam and his talking donkey. And ever since I've seen Shrek, that clouds my mind now of how I read that story. <laughs> we're also going to talk about the story about Elisha and the she-bears that come out of the woods. Do you know about this story? And there's these youth that are kind of teasing Elisha. And you're reading the story and you're like, what is going on here? Right? So we're going to unpack and do some of these kind of strange stories. And for you see how Christ even shows up in kind of the strangest of places. And at the end of the semester, during Advent, we're going to spend some time in Isaiah. And see how Christ also shows up there too. So I encourage you to come back. Bring your Bibles. Join us for this semester-long journey in the Old Testament together. Let's do a quick prayer. Dearly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the scriptures that make us wise for salvation, for faith in Christ Jesus. Lord God, guide us in that word and guide us every day in that word and always bring us back to you and your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.